Sports Arena. This is Portland Wrestling. And this is the Portland Wrestlecast. I'm Jim Valley. You know, if you didn't know, you would think that wrestling ended in the Pacific Northwest when Don Owen closed up. But that, that's not the case. The Northwest has produced many modern superstars that you still see today. Maybe they didn't necessarily come from Oregon or Washington, but many cut their teeth in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, which has been a local hotbed here in the Northwest for, for wrestling with a couple of different independent companies that at times would come and promote in Oregon and Washington. For example, there was a young woman named Rebecca Knox who wrestled and really kind of cut her teeth in Vancouver, the Vancouver wrestling scene, and she went on to become Becky Lynch. ELP, El Fantasmo, another Vancouver product who has gone on to great things in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And while he didn't really start here in the Northwest, obviously, Brian Danielson is from the state of Washington, but he never started here. He went down to Texas to kind of cut his teeth with Shawn Michaels. But there are others. Tony Kazina, a local guy from uh, Vancouver, Washington, the Portland area. He is now the coach down at the Fale Dojo in New Zealand. And he's had a great career influencing all kinds of junior heavyweights and now seemingly the next generation of talent, perhaps for New Japan Pro Wrestling and other places around the world. So there are many other people who you may not associate with the Northwest, but the Northwest legacy has gone on long after Don Owen closed his door. And in his new book, Excitement in the Air, Volume 3, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling, my guest today, Mike Rogers, has a lot of these interviews talking with people like ELP or Tony Casina or Matt Farmer, a very respected historian who's now one of the driving forces behind Defy Wrestling, one of the biggest and most respected independent companies anywhere, anywhere in the world. So lots of new uh, current Northwest voices are still on the scene, and Mike covers those along with some other interviews with classic people like like Tony Bourne, who is, uh, you know, one of the biggest Northwest legends of all time. John Rambo, who I've interviewed on this show, talking about some incidents that he had with the Barr family. It's crazy times in wrestling. You know, other people here include Mike Popovich, uh, someone that I need to interview, um, who was a local Oregon athlete who was fairly famous and had a very brief pro wrestling career. Um, a very fascinating story. We can, we'll have to get him on and interview him, but there's an interview with him here, here in this book. But Mike and I talk about a lot of different things. Um, was Portland a party territory? We talk about the infamous bomber where a lot of the boys stayed and people who you may not have known that came through and wrestled in Portland. The famous Dutch Savage and Lonnie Mainrib pulled on Mr. Fuji. We talk about the Mega Maharishi Ahmed and the local controversy that created that local Portland wrestling gimmick. 
So a lot of Northwest history here. You can check out the book on Amazon, Excitement in the Air, Volume 3. But let's talk now with my friend, Mike Rogers. When you interviewed all of these wrestlers for newsletters, books, all of your content, do they ever talk about how big of a party territory Portland was? A lot of times, you know, they'll they'll mention the bomber and then kind of laugh. You know, they'll say something like, oh, if those walls could talk. Um, uh, they might touch on it. I don't really think I have asked too many questions in that vein. It just, you know, it, it kind of leaves it just to your imagination of what living in the bomber was like. <laughs> so for those who don't know, can, what was the bomber? What is, I guess, still the bomber? The bomber was a, a gas station. And then in the back was just like a row of cabins. And it went in a circle. And you, would, if you were to drive back in there, you would just circle around and and come back up and then where the gas station was was um i don't know what time what type of an airplane it was but it was a real live airplane sitting up on above the gas station it was a bomber like a b-17 bomber bomber. yeah yeah it was a bomber and so then that just became the name of of the area where they the cabins or apartments that they lived in and um, uh, Vern, Vern Siebert was a, a good friend of mine before he ever got into wrestling. And uh, it was the only time that I was back there. I went and visited him a few times when he lived at the Bomber. And, and uh, so I had a chance to, to be back there a couple couple different occasions. And it was the uh, Art Lacey family owned the Bomber. I'm sorry, I missed that. It was Art Lacey who owned the bomber. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, no idea how wrestlers started living at the bomber. No, no, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever heard yeah. how it came to be or how how many years back it went. I, I'm not sure. That's those are good questions. So I'll well, see if I can figure out who to ask that. Well, I know that Fidel Sierra always. He talks about what a great guy Art Lacey was and the, the Lacey family. I'm not sure the, uh-huh. I know Art's no longer with us. I just don't know if, if I thought I re- I'm not sure what the, the situation is with the Lacey family and the bomber. The bomber itself, the plane is gone. Um, yes, yes, I'd heard that. It's in the uh, Museum of Flight in Salem or Eugene, wherever that is, I forget. Oh, okay. But it's down there, I think, with the Spruce Goose. The the famous uh, Howard Hughes plane, I think, is dead down there. Right. McMinnville. It's McMinnville, that, thank you. I believe is it just outside of McMinnville. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and the bomber was on a fairly major thoroughfare highway in Portland. So a very right. busy area. Right off McLaughlin. Right. Yeah. Pull in, get your gas, get some food, and go party with the wrestlers. Because that's what <laughs> I know. Piper called himself the king of the bomber. <laughs> so, any the reason I ask is I was just thinking about um, uh, Lance von Erich's book, um, Ricky right, Vaughn, and, right. and his that's opening chapter. Very, very unique way that it starts. Yeah, it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's just like, <laughs> Ah. Jim, can you can you did you guess who uh, culprit it was in the start of that book? We're on tape, Mike, so I I don't know what you're talking about. I okay. We're on tape. I'm not here to incriminate anybody, but no. To answer your question, yeah, I kind of do understand. I think I know who it was. <laughs> Enough said. But I'm not saying. I, we've all done crazy things in our life. Never done that. I just, 
I, anyway, some people live different lives than you and I, Mike. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of the appeal. I don't know about you, but for me, when I was a kid, I wasn't particularly athletic, still not. And sports were just very boring. The interviews, going to try to win for my mom, for my country, for God and my country. It was the same interview, very white bread, very bland, very boring. And I think that because wrestling had that color and that craziness, along with the athleticism, that's what drew me in. Right. Well, you know, I've, I've told people this story before. The very first time that I saw wrestling, and I, I can't even remember the wrestlers that, were, that I was seeing, but I was absolutely mesmerized. And, you know, I'll tell people that, you know, most, most people will grow out of that. And for some reason, I just never did. And it was just like the more I could learn, the more interesting it became. But yeah, the same same thing. It was just, I don't know, it, what everything everything it appealed to me the the characters, the the drama, the excitement, the athletics, and I'm just everything, I guess. You know, there was a point where I think I just didn't stop watching. I wasn't necessarily passionate, but it was on TV, so I'll just turn it on and whatever just kept watching it and i think you know during the early monday night raws when it was still kind of i was and i think a lot of fans were wanting a change from the more cartoonish type of era you know the nitro happened and that got more interesting and then just as i was going to get out of it probably you know the attitude era flipped the switch and that's kind of what kept me kept me back in or got me more passionate again newsletters you know all the like I said you could learn more and in a different way so there was always right a new layer to the onion one thing about your different books maybe that people don't realize is how many different stars came through Portland on their way to the top. Yeah, there was, there was so many because Portland got a reputation as this is a great area to come to. You work before the same, same city, you know, once a week, Portland, Salem, and Eugene. So you can't have the same match every week. You know, a lot of a lot of times you'd be wrestling the same guy, you know, for your first couple weeks in, and so you know that that was part of the learning that the, those matches had to had to be different. Um, you know, a lot of times they'd get a chance to do their the first interviews on TV that they've ever done, you know, and and so many instances, you know, that that was a learning experience, and and Portland has some painful, painful moments of of guys doing, you know, early, early interviews. Um, but yeah, as far as names, um, you know, the, the names that we're all familiar with, but like uh, Tully Blanchard, I know that name was mentioned here recently, came in four or five weeks. And he had had a, some success, especially in his home territory of San Antonio. So when he came in, I was expecting a, a bigger push for him than, than uh, uh, happened. Uh, Gino Hernandez, you know, when he came in, he had been champion, U.S. champion in Detroit in the Sheik's uh, promotion prior to coming in. And he'd been, uh, I believe, Texas champion before coming in. So I was really, really expecting a lot of things from him. And then, you know, he he didn't reach the potential that he had here. And I looked to see who the other baby faces were here at the time. And the baby face slate was pretty full, so it would have been hard for him to, to break in. But um, that's, 
that's the one name, and I know we've talked about it before in, in years past, that's the one name that I feel like Portland really dropped the ball on, Gino Hernandez. He was on the first live show I ever attended at one of my local high schools. There was, uh-huh. he was on the show, Skip Young was on the show, um, uh, was Ventura, Snuka, Savage. It was... Uh, Lonnie? No, Lonnie wasn't on the show. Um, Johnny Eagles, I remember. And then at the main event was Buddy and Ed Wyskowski against Andre. Um, uh, so that was fun. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you look at even the 60s. Bachwinkle, Vashon, uh, Adnan LKC, um, right. you know, Pat Patterson. So many people came through Portland that you don't necessarily associate with with the territory. Right. Bobby Shane yeah. had, a, had two runs here. The first time he appeared, he was, I believe, a, a part of his real name. He, I think his real name was Scholenberger, but he wrestled as Bobby C-H-O-E-N, you know, close to Bobby Shane, but when he came back in 69, he was Bobby Shane. And what a, what a great baby face at the time. Clean cut, you know, great wrestler, athletic. I, I re- can remember a match that I saw on t- TV with Bobby Shane. It was probably against Haru Sasaki. And he had Haru in a headlock, if I remember correctly. And Haru was getting ready to, to throw him off into the ropes or, or maneuver him off the headlock. And Bobby Shane just walked up the inside of the turnbuckles, got to the top, still with, a, with him in a headlock, and just came down on top. And that was the finish. You know, and then nowadays that sounds, you know, very simplistic. But watching that, it was like, whoa, you know, so exciting. What a move, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, things evolve over time. You have to go from one thing to another. So, right, you know, right. it was spectacular back then. Obviously, I never saw Bobby Shane, but looking at pictures, he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't look, you know, as great as everybody says. But everybody raves about Bobby Shane, pretty much universally. Right. And I know uh, um, Dean Silverstone had a lot of good things to say about about Bobby Shane, and and uh, you know he was really really destined to be bigger in, in wrestling, and you know his time got cut short. But um, you know he was really really headed to the to the top echelon of wrestling. We talked earlier. Uh, did you see anything special in Greg Valentine when he was here? Um, he became bigger than I expected him to. And I guess the reason why I say that is he wasn't a ball of fire on his interviews. Um, so his wrestling was solid. You know, I, I always thought it was interesting to watch him wrestling because he was kind of, kind of a mystery. You weren't quite sure what he was all about. So I always found his matches interesting. He then he teamed up with Ripper Collins, and they went to Hawaii and won the Hawaiian tag titles, but they didn't win the Northwest titles while they were here. But um, Ripper, one of the best heels ever, you know, did did most of the talking for them, and uh, so yeah, his time period here. I was a little surprised at the at the success he achieved after that fact. And then, you know, a lot of people came through like, uh, I wouldn't have expected um, everything that happened to a Brian Adidas, then known here as Brian Adidas. Why you would choose that name, I don't know, because obviously that's a copyrighted brand name, but... 
go with it. But I mean, he was kind. He was here for a long time in the mid card before he went back to Dallas and stayed there forever. Right. Um, you know, he won the tag title with Buddy one time when that short time that Buddy was a babyface. Um, kind of a someone you wouldn't have expected to win the tag titles how they used him. Again, I, even though he got the tag title one time, he wasn't used very well here. Sometimes I think Don would see the young, good-looking guys and, and maybe feel that they weren't ready for the, for the main event spots. You know, I think Don kind of liked the rough and tougher appearing wrestlers you know, for the, for the main event spots. So when you see someone like a Steve Dahl, who I think was a great, great baby face, you're kind of surprised that he got slotted in as high on the cards as he did. Um, same thing might be said for, for Brian Adidas. Speaking of Steve, Steve Dahl, I saw him as almost like the next evolution uh, for the Northwest, of like Brett Sawyer, Hack Sawyer, who was here for right. a long time. You know, Steve may be a little bit bigger, but again, not the biggest guy in the world. But, right, you know, I... When, when you think of everything you want in a baby face, Steve Dahl was, was that. You know, if he'd been a little bit, a little bit bigger, um, but that, that appearance and that that smile and that, you know, he was a, he was a good enough wrestler, uh, athletic and everything. Um, but definitely that's, that's the memories I have of him as just being such a good baby face. I just, you know, he was almost like Ricky Morton for the Northwest rock and roll image. And then smaller, like you said, and the girls really seemed to like him. Right. Right. Do you have any Steve Dole stories? I mean, I guess most people would know him as part of Well Done, but here he was a Southern rocker. Right. I never had a chance to interview him. Never had any, never had a chance to meet him or have inter any interactions with him. Um, uh, I once saw an interview that he had done in another bulletin, and uh, he had really done a, a good job in that interview, very open and, and did a good job. Yeah, I mean, he was here for, 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 for a very, very long time. But yeah, and then Brett Sawyer, again, a smaller baby face. Uh, this may blow some people's minds. He lost the match, but he even got to challenge Ric Flair when Ric Flair came to the Northwest. That's, he was a fairly popular wrestler. Right. Well, his is a really interesting story because he was in the preliminaries, and at some point the Northwest title became vacant. And it's probably the only time I can remember this happening. They put the Northwest title up in a battle royal and Brett Sawyer won the battle royal and you know it was previously he had had not been in any any main event so that elevated him and I, I can remember is like well he will probably lose the title after you know on his first defense whoever it is but he they elevated him from that point on and and he had quite a successful run and of course, that famous bloody interview in the Crow's Nest. Right. I think he had more than one bloody, bloody interview. He was not, not afraid. <laughs> you know, that same era, uh, Ed Leslie, Brutus Beefcake, was here as Dizzy Hogan. Right. Uh, again, I think they, did they promote him as like the cousin or brother? Some, it's funny to say that. I think it was brother, and they, they would tease that Hulk was coming, you know, and that Dizzy was working on, on trying to get him into the area. So they, they teased it, and, uh, you know, 
I don't know if it was anything that they were seriously trying to make happen or if it was just to cross their fingers. And But they, they mentioned Hulk. And, and let's see, this would have been, this would have been early, the, 83? 80, 82, 80. because here's why I remember, because Hulk Hogan had just, it was Rocky Three. he'd done The Tonight Show, which was a huge deal, and they came right. through town, and Dutch Savage introduced him as like the brother, I keep saying that, I'm the brother of Hulk Hogan, um, who had just been on The Tonight Show, I remember that. Yeah. But I cannot imagine Hulk Hogan coming in for the Northwest for more than more than one night, and he would have to be something like the Expo Center or something. Right. Yeah. Even even at that time, it would have been it would have been very big. Yeah. But he was making money everywhere else. He didn't need to didn't need to come come here. You know, one of the things I always liked about wrestling with the Northwest. It was to see various people, once they left, to see where they went. You know, Piper was the most fun because he was on cable TV in Georgia and then WWE, you know, all that historical run. But it was always fun to see who would move on to greener pastures and then who didn't. that was just that was kind of the fun thing, I guess, for me about various various people coming in. But I think that was kind of the issue with 1986, with the advent of cable TV. You had been exposed to so much talent, and then uh, whomever brings in someone like Art Cruz, who not saying they're not talented, but they had been exposed. He'd been exposed on cable TV as someone who'd been in a number of territories and was at the bottom of the pecking order in all of those territories. And suddenly he's the top guy in Portland. Right. Yeah. You, you started to have the opportunity to see, you know, wrestling from, many different places and uh you know that that probably didn't help portland um you know especially if some of your guys who'd been on top for so many years like like rip oliver when he went it had a chance to go to the wwe you know and he was not winning very many matches and portland would see that you know and then they couldn't understand you know, how he had had so much success here and then couldn't get out of opening matches there, you know, even if there was so much talent. It it probably did hurt Portland to a, a small degree. Well, I mean, I think Rip had the same problem in Florida because he had been exposed. He was, you know, just starting out there and had been seen as an opening match guy and couldn't break that stigma with those fans in right. in Florida. But here he came in on top pretty much and you know he was accepted because people had never seen him before. We didn't know. Right. Right. I think Portland fans were always would always try to take to the newcomers, you know. I think they were very accepting of whoever hopped into the ring, you know. They um, it's not very often that you hear stories of somebody that just didn't get over. I think Portland was really accepting of, uh, you know, babyface or or heel. Yeah, they played along. They were occasional heel fans, but just one or two teenage guys in the crowd. Nothing overwhelming. I do remember '85. They came through again at a local school and Ricky Vaughn, Lance Von Eric was on the card, Kevin Vaughn. And he was a big baby face, but there was probably the most 
um, shall we say, pushback to to him. Um, do you know if that happened anywhere else in the loop with Ricky Vaughn? As far as fans accepting him? Yeah, he seemed like there was almost like a, a little bit of a John Cena-like pushback with him. Uh, I don't know for sure. I can speculate. Sometimes when you have somebody who is so good-looking, right, you've got maybe the males in the audience who don't take to him as well. Um, he was not a great wrestler, even though he looked great, you know, and, and clumsy a little bit. I, I, you know, I know he injured flowers, Tim flowers for legitimately, you know, on, on, on accident. But, um, so I don't know if there is a, a combination of, of those things, um, where people could see, you know, he was green and, and he got pushed by necessity higher than he probably should have been even here. Um, so that, that might've been the point where the fans didn't take to him as he should. Well, and also weren't he and uh, Tom Zank kind of brought in kind of uh, one right after the other. So it kind of felt like, you know, they're both really handsome, really tan, really great bodies and very, sincere shall we say with uh, you know there's no piper like edge to either of them right you had kind of a, a shift when you had you know baby faces like savage and lonnie and 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 piper and and guys like that who you know you you could picture them going to a bar and and winning and and the fans like them and then you have have guys like tom zink and Ricky Vaughn and Steve Dahl, they look great, but maybe you don't have a lot of confidence in them winning a street fight. So maybe that's part of the pushback as well. Was, what was the deal with Tom Sank and then bringing in, like Scott Doring was his buddy. It felt like Zank kind of had sort of an influence on the territory for a little while. I was able to interview Tom Zink and he was very open, very, um, his interview, how can I put this? For someone who had been in the business a very short time, he was very confident of himself, very confident of himself. And uh, Don said, we're going to get you over. You're going to, win all your matches. And, and he was just like, well, Don, it's not rocket science, you know, just let me win and get in there. And I think maybe his attitude brought a little heat on himself within the territory, but that's what I remember from, from that interview was he was, he was very confident in himself. Very open. Um, but I don't know. I just, the, like you said, there was just this transition period in Portland in that time until it finally found more of a voice like we've talked about with, with Grappler. Um, one of the things, I guess, that um, wrestling today, there's a script, there are cues, your pyro goes here, you pose here, you walk here, you do this, this is your signature pose. Everything is very planned out. Whether you think it's good or bad, it is. Portland had none of that. It was much more fly by the seat of your pants, very last minute, nothing on paper. Right. You always got, you know, I used to write down any interesting points that wrestlers would, would say in their interviews. I remember Adrian Adonis, his first interview, he talked about different people from around the country that he'd worked with. 
you know, I know he mentioned Dusky Rose and Wahoo McDaniel. I can remember that he, that he mentioned those names in that first interview. And I'd write, write that down because I thought that was so, so interesting. And yeah, I don't, you know, maybe they, maybe Don might have said, talk about the towns, you know, or mention your, your towns as they'd go up and maybe do their first interview. You know, I don't think Don gave them too much of a direction. You know, you had to get yourself over if you were going to get over. You had to display some some uh, personality. I remember Mike Golden. The very first time he came up and did an interview, he had a little little catchphrase that he wanted to say, and it was I don't remember the teeny boppers in in bikinis or some little catchphrase that he he was using, and he came up. And he could not, whatever it was he wanted to say, he could not get it out. And if ever I've seen a wrestler be doomed in the territory, that was the moment. You know, it was just like, you could just see it. No one was going to take Mike Golden seriously after that interview. And later on, he, he got a second interview that night. And he came up and he was able to say the phrase that he wanted to say. And that almost made it worse. <laughs> that kind of stuff is, is important. Um, from your experience with your interviews, Don was in charge, but there wasn't really a booker, so to speak, like people are used to today. That lack of a booker did that create dissension in the dressing room or was it a generally collaborative experience? I've talked that over with different people, you know, through interviews. And because um, you would think if there was not one person in charge, you know, giving directions, if it was a collaborative thing, you would think that it would be harder to get business done because people would always seemingly being speaking up for themselves to get themselves into a better position. But at least the, the product that we saw as fans, it didn't, you know, outwardly, it didn't seem to affect that at all. I know Dutch had, I don't think he ever was called the booker, but he certainly had a, had a say, you know, I, I've never heard of like Bull Ramis being talked as a, as a booker, but you'd have to imagine that uh, he had a say like Bull Ramis went undefeated in Portland for over a year and, uh, or had the tight Northwest title for over a year. Um, then you hear, you know, you kind of jump forward and you hear Buddy had, had the ear, but he, I don't think ever was call, called a booker. Um, the first time we ever really hear the word booker is for Rip Oliver, you know, and before, before that, it appears just to be collaborative. And I think Don probably had more of a say than, than people realized. Yeah. I think people see that ring announcer. And he looks so detached, getting the names wrong and saying the same towns when they're not from there and the same like three weights. Um, one gets the impression that he's not paying a great deal of attention to the product. And that's that's very easy to do. But I think most people, you know, say that Don, you know, was fairly active as far as, you know, how the show was run. Right. I can remember probably about 1972, Mr. Fuji had come in and he'd had a big run a year or two prior. And he came in and, and kind of unannounced, they hadn't been building him up. And he wrestled a white meat baby face by the name of Len Shelley, who was always in the opening matches. And Len Shelley upset Mr. Fuji. And I, I just could never imagine why. You know, I was always interested in that result. I could never imagine why, because Len Shelley 
wasn't then cap, you know, moved to the main events or anything. Um, and I always, always under Dutch told me, I think I brought that, that result up to Dutch and, uh, he said, Oh, Don, Don always did the preliminaries and then we would work out the main events. So it's just interesting. It was, you know, for our territory, it was like one, two, three and, and Razor Ramon level of, you know, not understanding of how that result could come about. You know, when you have the pecking order, you know, it's, it's always great to see like anything can happen. I just thought it was an interesting thing from my memory. You never found out. Never really find it, found out. Maybe, maybe it was Fuji wasn't here for an extended stay. He was here just for a, a show or two or a week or two. But yeah, it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it never really made, made sense as, you know, what, why that result was. Was it Fuji that was in the boat, that rib? Yes, yes. This, that story goes, Dutch told that story. He and Lonnie and Fuji were headed to Medford, and Fuji was drinking Southern Comfort, and they were making sure that he had plenty to drink. And uh, they got back to Portland, and Fuji was passed out. They had a, a little rubber boat. They, they got him undressed, put him in the rubber boat, and then there's a... a independent living off of McLaughlin, a, a gigantic tower. And there was a lake right there. And they put him in the lake, put him in the boat and pushed him out into the lake just as the sun was coming up and people are coming out for their walks. And I think Dutch tells the story that the police were called to try to figure out what, what this fellow was doing in the middle of the lake naked. Anyway, you have to imagine when you get Lonnie and Fuji together, the, you know, the ribs had to be notched up quite a bit. Good God. That's so funny. I, you've got to be really drunk to get, to be undressed. And then, well, <laughs> wrestlers was, was Portland a big ribbing territory? Um, no, I, I always try to ask that in just about every interview. I think, and you, you, many times you have people will say, oh, yeah, there was the harmless ribs, you know, and, and not too many people will, will come up with examples. I think Kurt Henning turned it up a little bit when he was here. It seemed like he always wanted to to use a lock on, on their other wrestlers duffel bags and just attach a lock or lock up their gear, or, you know, to a, a locker or, uh, so Kurt Hennings mentioned a lot, um, try to delve in to see if, if dynamite dynamite and Kurt were here at the same time. So that had to be, had to be some interesting stories there. Um, Lonnie Fuji, those are the ones that, you know, you'd like to really delve in and see, you know, what what ribs are around for those, those stories. You know, Kurt Hennig, when he was here, was such a white meat baby face. I found him in this era just boring. Um, I couldn't believe he was Northwest champion. I just thought that he was just... Boring. Obviously, he became much more interesting and went on to a great career. But when he was here, I was just like, I just did not see anything. And then to hear that he was still a ribber at that early of a stage in his career. Well, right. Well, he had a, a real early run, and he was so skinny. Yeah, so skinny that you know, when he had a a very early run. He disappeared for a little bit and he came back and when he came back he got he got a good push then and uh, I think he was good friends with Buddy so that yeah. definitely helped his run here. Oh I'm sure you know Buddy obviously liked him a lot. Buddy yeah. you know sold a lot for him 
And well, buddies will love for everybody, but really put him over strong. Yeah, yeah. So and then they team together, and um, when do you think things? Do you think eighty five, eighty six is eighty six is kind of when things went south as far as gates and houses? Yeah, I, I think so. It was it was a time where you know you had Rip Oliver, you had Ricky Santana and Coco Samoa and Brady Boone on top, and that, not to take anything away from those guys, but it's just you know it's not a spot that they probably should have been. You know, then they they would turn Assassin and they would turn Mike Miller and and they'd get a little bit of run, you know, with those guys. But those turns, they were like once a year, you know, and when I mentioned that that time period was so dry, you know, and, and things would pick up then when, when one of those guys would turn. But, you know, I think the grappler, when he came in and the booking style changed, you know, Portland and then at that same time, you know, Piper came in and had his input then, you know, things picked up really well, you know, 88, 87, 88, you had kind of when things came back together, Scotty, the body was here, you know, and, and you had a, just a nice mix of big guys, you know, Scott Norton, you know, a lot of talent right at that same time as well. And, you know, when you look at that roster to it toward the, the very end, probably the biggest roster as far as body mass, uh, I would argue probably ever in Portland history. Those guys were... Right. He had so many giants. He had Nord, Bruce Brothers, you mentioned Norton, uh, Billy Jack, Crush, Brian Adams... Uh, Bill Francis was here for a while, and, and he was a big guy. Yeah. He was past his prime, but he was a big guy. We've never really talked about the the Francis family, have we? I don't think so. Ed was around 19... in the 50s. Uh, yeah, I believe he was one of the very first Northwest champs. Um. Then he went over and, and took over probably around 1964 as the promoter of Hawaii. And I think they worked worked with, you know, Don. I think Don helped get him into Hawaii um, with a little bit of a, a loan. So they were close, and then they worked together a little bit as trading talent. And I loved researching Hawaii wrestling because, the very, very top names were in, in wrestling in Hawaii, and each week or each each card, you had a different top name because uh, you would always have the guys going to Japan or or Australia stop in, you know, to, to wrestle. Um, but those cards, you know, were unbelievable. And I, I had a chance to interview Lord Blairs and Ed Francis, to try to learn more on Hawaii. And Ed, ha- Ed Francis had a book coming out on, on Hawaii, so he was a little bit, he held back a little bit on, on the information. And, and Lord Blairs would always talk about, they had their core of Hawaiian guys like King Curtis and Ripper Collins and Johnny Barons and Jim Haiti. They were, he felt those were the guys that really drew the money. And then the other guys that would come over, Patterson and Stevens, and whoever filled out the cards were just like the extras. But um, I, I think Lord Blair has actually started getting a little irritated with me because I kept trying to dig. I was so fascinated with Hawaii. It's like, you know, was it hard to book those cards? You had so much talent, you know. And I, I kept, I kept trying to ask questions you know, just worded just a little bit different, different ways. And, and, 
I don't know if he felt it was as special as, as I did. Um, Ed Francis came back to Portland and wrestled here in about 1974. And he started off, they had a battle royal, and all the wrestlers were blindfolded except the mystery entrant into the battle royal, and that was Ed Francis. So Ed Francis didn't have to be blindfolded, so he ended up winning the battle royal, and uh, it was a way to introduce Bill Francis, his son, and um, they had a chance to team up. And Bill's another another wrestler who, a big bodied, he was, I'm going to guess, 6'5", skinny at the start and you know we there was many many years where he did not wrestle and he came back in in 87 or so he did not live up to his potential as you know his size and uh, what he could have been i don't know if bill was the athlete that russ francis was obviously not but bill always looked a little clumsy in the ring to me but, um, you know, it would have been nice. Bill had a chance to go to the AWA, which I think was the only other place that he wrestled. And if I remember right, he had a non-title win over Bockwinkle. So they had plans for him. Um, but then again, he just never quite lived up to, to his potential. Yeah, when he came back, um, as you mentioned, you passed his prime, but still looked fine. I was like, well, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, for his age and everything, looked great. Um, my impression was, I guess he just, just likes to wrestle, just wanted to, wanted to wrestle some more. Right. Because, I mean, well, I remember it, he wasn't making money. Yeah. I remember in uh, 1986, I was doing my student teaching in, in uh, the Dells, and he was a police officer in the Dells at that time. And so I remember being in the, in the staff room and somebody said, Bill Francis is in the weight room right now working out. <laughs> and of course, you mentioned Russ. Uh, was he 49er? Yes. Yeah. And he was in the WrestleMania two football battle royal. Right. Right. Was he the last football player to be eliminated? I think so. Because he has a wrestling background, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Um, uh, you know, you made when you're talking about Hawaii. Uh, I feel bad because you say things and it triggers my memory, and so we're sort of we jump around a lot. I was hopeful we'd have a a theme, but we don't have a theme. We just have various memories as they come to mind. There's just so much to talk about. There yeah. is. There is. If you don't know Portland, you probably having a hard time following along because there's no cohesive story here. And I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Hawaii made me think of the tales from the territory and Rocky Iakea doing the Hawaii one, the Polynesian pro. And uh, he was here in the Northwest. Yes. Yeah. Who is he? I haven't. See, Ali Hassan? No. He was Abudadine. Abudadine. Yeah. Yeah. Part of Rip Oliver's clan. Right. And I loved his interviews because he would take kind of the Kevin Sullivan esque, you know, dark side interviews. He'd talk about the bones of Benares and and uh, you know, mystical. I loved his interviews and I, I'm sure there was a hint of his his dad, too, converted, well, you know, mixed in with those those interviews. Yeah, it was always, you know, he was this oil bearer, you know, this evil, evil Arab, because that's what they had. And, <laughs> you know, then he's talking about, you know, let's talk about, actually, we talk about Fidel Castro, too. Was it? I for anyway. But, yeah, he had all of these different uh, iconographies, imagery, in his promos, and then talk about all the oil money. Um, but I didn't find out till later that he was King Curtis's kid. And at that point, right. I went, I went, 
Oh, now it all makes sense. <laughs> I was always crossing my fingers. They, King Curtis spent a lot of time here in North, Northwest in the early 60s, but I never got a chance to see him. And I was always crossing my fingers that maybe they would bring him in for, for something, you know, just something. That would have been a lot of fun. Me personally, by the time um, he came in as Abuda Dean, I don't know, I think it would have been better if Abuda Dean was just Abuda Dean and not an oil sheik because we had seen so many sheiks by that time. And I think... Right. I think if he just would have dropped that part of the character, I think it would have been more effective. But that's just closer to what King Curtis is, his family heritage. Right. You know, there's one one part in Katie Bar the Door where we talk, try to examine a little bit of, you know, the ethnic heels. You know, you, you have lots and lots of uh, Germans, you know, headlined by the Von Steigers. And uh, you had a few sheiks, Iron Sheik, and before that, um, Akbar was here. Um, Abudadin and the Ali Hassan were here. And uh, kind of interesting. I think Don at times would kind of float back to that ethnic heel. You know, you, you had Rasputin here in the um, mid-'70s. He was a Scotsman, but they turned him into a Russian. You know, a Russian heel. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is just based around the patriotism of certain eras. After World War II, you've got all the Germans in wrestling. And then right. with the advent, the 70s and 80s oil crisis, uh, the Reagan era, the Cold War, then you have a lot of sheiks and in various things, but right, you know, every you know whether it's in the AWA or wherever, everybody seemed to have a chic. Um, so that's yep. just <laughs> just kind of, wrestling is supposed to give you that catharsis, and you know I'm glad that we've moved away from that and found other ways for wrestling to give you similar feelings to kind of ring things out of your psyche, but right. I don't yeah, know. I, I agree as well. Yeah. I mean, I, even though, you know, the iron Sheik may have been a bad guy, even as a kid, you know, I mean, I understood what was up, but I also understood that he was a bad person, but it didn't mean like everybody from his culture was a bad person. Right. But I understand where there's, you might be worried about those confusions. <laughs> you know, it was funny um, with, you know, with uh, in the 90s, late 80s, the Spotted Owl was a big deal here in the Northwest because we had right. so much logging. And then they couldn't log in various areas because of the, the Spotted Owl and old growth timber. And so Rip Oliver was a, was a logger to support, you know, all the loggers who were watching wrestling, maybe, or maybe not. I don't know. But it's just funny how they always try to play off various things. But the Spotted Owl right. was a thing for a while. And, and, and Wiskowski, go ahead. Yeah, Wiskowski with the, with the Bogwan. You know, and, and he turned it into his version. Um, you know, Mega Maharishi, I'm Ed. You know, really, really a brilliant idea, you know, especially in this area. So very quickly explain the Rajneeshis for anyone who doesn't remember or wasn't alive. It was kind of a, a cult that took over a small... Um, town in Oregon towards the eastern part of Oregon, and uh, they were involved in just 
shenanigans. People it made people uncomfortable as far as uh, what they were up to, and it was unclear, you know, what they were up to. And then at one point, and I don't have this exactly right, they unleashed a virus or something on some salad bars in Oregon, and it made people very, very sick. Correct. Um, um, and then they eventually got ran out of Oregon. Yeah, they had this commune, and they had a leader, yeah. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and right. he was their, their leader, and then he had a, a right-hand woman. I forget her name, but she kind of I, did a lot of his, for lack of a better term, dirty work. Dirty um, work is exactly what I was going to say. And <laughs> I believe for a time, they either did or tried to take over the city council in that town. And the salad bar, I think, was part of that plan, as I recall. But I'm a little yeah, vague on the yeah. details. But anyway, they were a big deal for years, year two, I forget how long, but a lot of national news. Um, and so, yeah, Ed dressed up very similar to what the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was dressed up as. And was right. it? The red robe and yeah. red beanie hat. And he'd let his beard grow a little bit longer. and Which is really, very really smart. A, very smart. Really a smart, smart move. You know, deal. if you can't, you know, look as glitzy as cable wrestling, the best you can do is probably try to super serve and localize your product. So, you know, the audience isn't going to get that watching cable TV. Right, right. And with Ed, they're, you know, they're probably wondering, oh, no, are, are these Bogwans invading our wrestling, you know, and and uh, they're bad people and we're, you know, we're going to boo them. <laughs> That's what wrestling is is supposed to do. It's this, this interactive, interactive theater. Right. So tell me about the new book. The new book, volume three. You know, I was fortunate enough in Volume 1 to have really, really top names. Dutch Savage, Luthez, Don Leo Jonathan, Bull Ramus. Volume 2, equally compelling people, Ivan Koloff, Mad Dog Vachon, Bobby Jaggers, Rick Martell, John Tolos. Book 3, I don't know if there's really, if you're looking for big, big names, you know, it, Grappler is probably the biggest name. I've got some very, very old interviews with Tony Bourne and Haru Sasaki that I did even before I started um, Ring Around the Northwest. So that was 83, and those were done before. They're short, but they're, uh, they're still meaningful. Uh, Mike Miller does a great interview. Then there's a couple interviews with um, some current wrestlers. Um, El Fantasmo, who's popular in New Japan right now. I had done an interview with him 11, 12 years ago, and I'm imagining he was about 20 then. The interview was very silly. He didn't really take it seriously. And I think I printed it in my bulletin, but, but I knew that he didn't. It was entertaining because it was funny, but he didn't really say anything of, of substance in that interview. Now, 12 years later, I got in touch with him again, and now you can see the maturity in, in where he is at, at his age. And to discuss how he came from Vancouver and ECCW and, and went over to England just to see where this career could really take him. And, you know, slowly getting more and more bookings, you know, in, in the England, Great Britain area, and then make a contact with New Japan and, you know, immediately 
immediately he he was pushed. So they really he's very athletic and and uh, you know quite a, a athletic good new star. So they pushed him immediately, and and he's seeing a lot of success in New Japan. So his interview, I I was really happy with the Bollywood boys. I had an interview with them years ago, and and uh, you know reconnect with them after their successful run in WWE. You know, they, it's it's interesting. At the Gary Royal, we had touched on that interview. That's in here. Not a lot of gigantic names at the first two, but again, we we had touched. I don't think you have to have been the biggest name to be able to have an interesting story. And uh, as I glanced through and, you know, we were putting them, putting them together, I think there's a lot of, of really good interviews in here. So I, I'm proud of it. I think, I think people will enjoy it. Yeah, you don't need to have the biggest name to have the best stories. Talking about Gary Royal getting blackballed, apparently, by Don right. Owen. Um, right. You know, there's, you never know. I mean, you know, these interviews that I do, a lot of people don't know various names, but the stories are great. And that's kind of the fun of these interviews is what crazy things happened in the circus that is pro wrestling. Right. I had an interview with uh, Butts Gerard, who was a, just a journeyman wrestler in the Northwest. And I had called him, this is 20 years ago, and I had called him. And he lives in Vancouver area, Vancouver, Canada. And the one thing that I remember about this interview was when I got my phone bill after that, whatever the bad connection between my provider and, and Canada was, for an hour phone call for this interview, it was $130. And I I was angry because I literally could have flown to do the interview and it would have been cheaper. And uh, I I told Frank, my, my editor, my friend, I said, we need to use this interview and get the, as much use out of it as we could because that interview cost me a lot of money. <laughs> But if you spread the $130 over your various interviews, it's not that much per interview. Right, right. You did okay. Well, Sheesh, we got to get you your money back. How can people buy your book? All the books are available on Amazon. Uh, It's Excitement in the Air, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, The Voices of Northwest Wrestling. And then the other book is Katie Bar the Door, The History of Portland Wrestling. They're on Amazon. Looking it up right now. Let's see. $130. Wait, what? <laughs> Got to get it back. Wait. All at once. <laughs> it's not $130. I just made that up. All right, Mike. Well, man, thank you so much. We'll have to do this again sometime. We really appreciate all your knowledge. Absolutely. Thanks so much. It was lots of fun. All right, man. Take care. So long, everybody. From the Portland Sports Arena, this has been Portland Wrestling.